Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is Carson Gibbons tuning in for the first ever episode of the Carson Gibbons and Bradley Colvin podcast. I've got Bradley Colvin here with me. Hey, guys. So we're just doing a dry run here, guys. Brad and I have been fascinated with the world of podcasts for quite some time. Um, I don't know if you have any favorites off the top that you want to share, Brad. Uh, the Joe Budden podcast, Beautiful Anonymous with Chris Gethard. Conan O'Brien's new podcast, just been a big fan. Yeah, I didn't realize that Conan was putting out so many podcasts in addition to the TBS show until I looked up. I look up some of those that you refer to me on kind of a per podcast basis based on the guest. I know you've turned me on to the Joe Budden podcast um, back when somebody was beefing. I, f- I forget who it was, but... Oh, uh, it was probably Drake and Pusha T. Yes, that last saga I got all up on the Joe Budden podcast. Good compliment to, uh, to breakfast club. I like breakfast club personally. I like whiskey ginger with Andrew Santino, the fighter and the kid with Brian Callen and Brennan Schaub. Of course, JRE, the grandfather of podcast, Joe Rogan. He's absolutely incredible. Yeah, he's amazing. So we're just aimlessly kind of drifting along in this podcast. We haven't put a name on this thing. We haven't really established an outline or a topic that we're going to be adhering to week to week, but we just kind of put together a rough outline today of maybe going through some of our background information, how you and I got to become friends, interested in podcasts and broadcast media, and then maybe wrap things up with a couple current events that we kind of have some overlapping interests in. Absolutely. You know, we're just two white guys, so we figured why not? (laughs) It's our time, baby. (laughs) Everyone loves us. (laughs) There's no persecution whatsoever. <laughs> what do we have to lose? We've had a great run, um, and we're still on we're still on top to a certain extent. Absolutely. But happy to share that stage with everybody. No comment from Brad. Okay. No, nope, moving right along. <laughs> Getting myself into hot water on episode one, folks. So, Bradley, what's been up? You're a school teacher. How did how did we get here? I'm a failed tech entrepreneur, uh, oh, burgeoning wow. tech entrepreneur. Depending far, on how you look at it. Far from failed. You're doing wonderful. And you teach? I teach. I currently teach uh, high school English. And what what grades in high school? Ten through twelve. Uh, I was teaching middle school out in Maryland for two years, and now I'm back home teaching uh, where I first began my student teaching. So that's been really nice. Now, have you ever taught ten through twelfth graders before? Yeah, I taught for two years in Dallas. I was teaching seven through twelfth grade back then, and had nine different preps and now I'm down to three. So that's been really nice. It's a nice cushy job. Interesting. It's funny. uh, Brad has had a lot more exposure to the youth of America than I have through his teaching years. And at first, you know, when you're just exiting college, it's like, Oh, cool. Brad's a teacher. And then 10 years go by and suddenly Brad has become more relevant and stayed more relevant as a result of being around younger people and their pop culture references and all of these things that I don't even hear about anymore. They certainly uh, keep me on my toes and they've been dabbing and yeeting since day one and uh, definitely keep me up on all the, all the pop culture and happenings going on and, and media. So you're teaching 10th through 12th grade. What, what subjects? English. Just strictly, English? Yeah, strictly English. So what are you guys reading right now? Oh, 1984, To Kill a Mockingbird. And all the standard culprits. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Here's a book that you need to read now that you won't understand contextually for another 25 years. 100%. We're also reading Lord of the Flies. And <laughs> yeah, just all the classics, and they really don't care about it at all. But uh, what was the joke that you tweeted out the other day about the 1984 oh, situation? Man. Somebody had some kid, you were reading a passage, and it was so funny. I'm currently forgetting what that joke was. All right. Well, what's, that, what's that Twitter handle in case one of the fans wants to go locate it for us? Humble Brad with a V. Humble Brad. Humble Brad this week. Brad has a tendency to change his Twitter handle just about weekly. Oh, as soon as my students find it, I uh, delete everything and then create a new handle. Tell me about the worst experience with a student thus far this year. Tell me about the baddest student that you have. The baddest student that I have this year, it's actually been a cakewalk. I have had a few kids uh, write some, I don't know, I guess kind of sketchy things during their uh, 
whenever we do free writes in their journals. Creative writing? Yeah. <laughs> um, really? So, so you ask for a creative writing reflection period, and then you read that, and you're horrified at what you're reading. Yeah, you know, a lot of a lot of drug talk. Uh, we, you know, sexual misconduct. Uh, you know, just they they find they find it pretty funny. Um, a lot, it's a lot of crass humor. So I've had to get onto them for that. Is there a student in your class that you've already identified as the person that will be on the Billboard Top 100 or winning an Emmy or an architectural contract? Or something of that nature in the future? Absolutely not. <laughs> They're a bunch of idiots. <laughs> Sounds like a great charter yeah, school. <laughs> it's, it'll be me before them. <laughs> well, that's too, that's not my journey at all. I'm total PR and advertising buff coming out of college. Yeah, tell working. us a little about that and your endeavors. Well, it's been all centered around kind of the Marcom creative advertising space, um, supporting them from a, a media perspective human capital perspective. Um, I've sold agency services. Most recently, I was uh, the co-founder of a little startup called Cosmic JS. Um, it's a, a Y Combinator backed company that services Major League Baseball, KFC, Daily Motion, some really cool brands to help them power content for all of their internet connected applications. Uh, so that was a really rewarding experience. And now I'm in talks with several new startups to help bring them market and kind of weighing those opportunities and just uh, exploring some passion pursuits in the interim, like playing some golf, spending time with some family, recording my first podcast with my buddy B-Rat here. Right. So life is good. I was wondering, is there, because we come from a small college town and then... That's where we and, met. Right. And so graduating from Southwestern Adventist University and then coming into the big leagues, you know, moving out to Dallas, uh, what's been... Or can you just reflect on that a little bit? Yeah, I would say I'm, I'm perfectly poised to reflect on that now, even as opposed to years past, because I grew up in the Dallas area, so I wasn't a stranger to uh, a bigger city, if you will. But like Brad said, we went to a college in a town of 6,000 people when school is in session. <laughs> so it was a boutique, as we like to call it. I'm very proud of our alma mater, but... Yeah, I chose that school because their journalism school was so close to the Dallas market that I knew for internships and job placement after graduation that I would stand the best chance. So some of the sister universities that, you know, we probably had the opportunity to go to and actually you did for a while, I, I foregoed because they weren't closer to a larger media market. But the big reflections that I would say on Dallas, um, so I moved back to Dallas almost nine, ten years ago now. And I've been in kind of the uptown area uh, with, with stints in Baltimore and San Francisco. But the majority of that time spent in uptown. And it's just incredible to see how neighborhoods can change over time. And uptown used to always be the rage for the first five years that I was here. That was the Deep Ellum. And Deep Ellum was kind of uh, scoffed at. It was kind of the, the lowbrow section of town. And if you're in the Dallas area, uh, anybody listening to this podcast, you definitely understand that Deep Ellum is where everything is at. It's definitely flip-flopped. It's basically our sixth street at this point. And so just from just from a zoning perspective, legislation, like who's on the city council, um, what the vibe is in the city, it's just crazy to see how different places will kind of take on a different, um, a different persona, if you will. Um, so I, I think that more than anything, the bright lights of Dallas, if you will, has kind of been dispelled for me. I miss how big it was, how uh, formidable it was when I was 21. And now that I'm turning 30 this fall, it's, uh, you know, I understand it doesn't hold a candle to a New York, a London, a Paris or anything like that, but it's still a major market. Absolutely. So I, I'm here for the moment. I mean, it's, it's difficult when you think about the only places that I would rather live in America besides Dallas are a New York, a San Francisco, and LA, like places with state income tax, higher cost of living, just much more inconvenient to live. Yeah, you were recently out in California, right? Yeah, I lived in, lived in the Bay Area in Mountain View, uh, just north of San Jose, January through March of this year. So the startup that I was with uh, got into what they kind of call the Harvard of accelerators. Um, Y Combinator. So this uh, this accelerator is birthed 
startups like Airbnb and Stripe and Dropbox and Instacart and a bunch of like, you know, pretty large consumer and B2B technology products that have, you know, they have a market cap of about 150 billion at this point. So we went out there and we would have these awesome office hours every week, um, great dinners with all these various entrepreneurs, and they would bring in VIPs to kind of inspire and motivate us. So got to see the co-founders of Cruise, who sold their autonomous driving startup to GM for over a billion dollars. Got to see uh, the CEO of uh, Airbnb, the chief R&D officer of Spotify. He came in and showed us the graph of Spotify's growth from inception to complete killing of the record label industry <laughs> like they did a number on that industry that's insane see all that goes completely over my head and is above my pay grade and is within a certain respect which is funny because you've been making more money than me as a teacher <laughs> for the last however long yeah <laughs> um and so you're dealing well with all of that and i just remembered uh what i had tweeted out it was actually from the book 1984 in which uh, it talks about the thought police. And if you know anything uh, about the word thought and how it's used now, it means that hoe over there. Um, and so as soon as we read that aloud in class, uh, all of my students had a pretty good laugh at it. And I'm just like, no guys, not, not that kind of thought. That's too funny. That's why 1984 is over their heads. Like, Absolutely. I've heard a lot of people reflect on high school literature that they had to read, and there was zero comprehension. And I went through that, too. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I mean, all of those classic literature books that have been written so long ago are still extremely relevant. You know, we're also going to be reading Fahrenheit 451 this year and, you know, the... Uh, just making certain books illegal, uh, that, that's been prevalent within the last 10 years. Uh, certain books you're not allowed to read in school. And different like which like ones? Um, you can't. Mark Twain. Uh, Huck Finn. You can't read uh, To Kill a Mockingbird at certain public schools now. Uh, certain states have banned that. What, what's in that? That's uh, It just deals with racism, the use of the N-word, uh, different things like that. So they're trying to trying to get it out, even though the purpose of that book is to do the exact opposite. Interesting. Yeah, I read Huck Finn and several Mark Twain books and was always like, whoa, this yeah. is a... And, but for a long time there, in the 90s and like 2000s, I feel like we had edited books where they would change the wording and now you're saying they're illegal. Yeah, there are certain abridged books, but even, yeah, they're, they're just banning several of them. You know, it typically was like something like Harry Potter and which dealt with witchcraft, but now it's more... You know, we're living in a more PC uh, type of world now, and um, everybody's just trying to be politically correct and not step on anybody's toes. And so whenever certain books deal with uh, difficult topics, uh, it could ruffle some feathers. So, But making it illegal feels almost communist in certain ways. I mean, that's exactly what books like 1984 discuss, the government control. And that's one of the reasons that I enjoy reading them in class because they're still highly relevant. Yeah, that's really, you know, a lot of people say that Mark Twain was the world's first comedian. <laughs> yeah. What do yeah. you think about that? Uh, I would agree. I'm not extremely well versed in Mark Twain, but uh, even, even then, a lot of his books are still relevant. So going back to like some of the PC culture and how you're seeing that within now you, you teach at a religious school, let's Absolutely. clarify. So Harry Potter isn't being banned at most public schools, I wouldn't think. Is that a religious school situation? Even in public schools, it, it had been banned. Really? Um, yeah. Luckily, I work at a pretty progressive Christian school. And so as long as I state the purpose behind it and I, you know, send out an email to the parents and make sure they're all fine with it, uh, we just continue moving forward. This is this topic might ruffle some feathers, so I'll try to be be delicate about it. But I am curious since you're you're teaching 10th through 12th graders. So these guys are these guys and girls are 16 to 18 years old, yes. essentially. Yeah. So your your identity is is coming out at that point, whether you're, um, I guess, kind of conservative, mm -hmm. uh, liberal, gay, straight, um, non-binary, yep. uh, trans. What, have you seen anybody 
come out or struggle with like a gender identity situation in this religious school setting? And if so, how was it handled? Yeah, uh, my first year of teaching uh, in Dallas, I had a student who I was one of the first people he came out to, you know, he felt comfortable in my classroom. I typically like to set up a safe space for my students to where they feel like they can share anything. And uh, he eventually felt comfortable enough to tell me and, you know, opened up and I, I treat all students the same, you know, I, I like to be kind of sarcastic and joke with them and I, I don't treat anyone differently in that regard. So I, I suppose that's why he felt comfortable in the first place uh, opening up and, you know, I'm not there to really judge or give my opinion on anybody's lifestyle. I'm just there to give them life skills and teach them more about literature and hopefully they can gain some type of new perspective from the books that we read. And that's really my purpose in the classroom, in my opinion. So there's no type of screwed up conversion therapy that's happening in this no, religious school. No, absolutely not. <laughs> that's, that's good to hear. Um, it's always interesting growing up in a more religious environment where some of the things that you were kind of raised to believe that you don't even think your parents really believe anymore. You kind of look back and shudder and horror and say, how are we biased against things that are totally natural and just, you know, happen from birth essentially? Yeah. I mean, growing up Christian and our denomination is Adventism. Uh, you grow up with a certain amount of beliefs. And as you get older, you begin to realize, or hopefully you begin to realize that just because you have your certain beliefs doesn't mean you need to, uh, I guess, throw that in someone else's face if they don't believe the same thing. Like you can still believe whatever it is that you do and respect the people around you, even if they don't share those same beliefs. We've seen a lot of youth kind of elevated on the political spectrum the political platform with uh the parkland shooting survivors yes. making a big bid for uh gun safety gun reform uh you've got this new greta girl that <laughs> has been all over the news for right. climate change and environmental changes um it what, what are you seeing in terms of your student body are politics playing a role is that a big thing 100 percent. so actually whenever i was in maryland i was i was as I stated before, I was in Maryland for two years teaching out there. And, you know, there are different strikes going on in D.C. every single day. And whenever those school shootings, I sadly can't even remember which one it was whenever I was in, D in or near D.C. Um, but we had a day to where we didn't have school and students were allowed to go protest. You know, we had the teacher strike going on. And uh, teachers went out there to protest uh, their salaries. And uh, so it's been highly prevalent, even back here in Texas. I mean, you can imagine the different types of, uh, I guess, personal beliefs, from, you know, going from Maryland to Texas, um, especially whenever it comes to, like, gun restrictions or the lack thereof. Um, but yeah, kids are always talking about it. They, and they're a lot more forthright about it than many adults. They really have no filter and they'll state exactly what they believe in class. They can give credit where credit's due and tear someone down where they need to be torn down. Yeah, 100%. They, um, they're smarter than we give them credit for. And if we kind of look back to where whenever we were in high school, we can look back and see all the times that adults were trying to keep things from us and all they really want is openness and uh, the ability to to say how they feel and so i just try to i just try to open open the floor for them who do you fall back on for support when i mean basically you're telling me and not to sound like an old grandfather here but adolescent kids are coming to you and telling you that something wrong is going on at home or mm -hmm. that they don't understand what's going on spiritually or or they're they're gay or they have an alternative lifestyle. Do you take all that home with you? Like what is your outlet for getting some of that stuff off of your shoulders? Um, you know, I confide in, in friends. Like I, I call you up on many occasions just to talk about my own personal life. Uh, I have coworkers who kind of go through the same thing. I I'm blessed with a staff that are also 
you know, there for the same reasons I am. And luckily we all have different personalities. And so different kids feel comfortable opening up to, uh, any, any number of us. And, um, you know, sometimes I do take that home and, and it sticks with me because I never want my students to hurt or, or feel like they don't belong or, um, you know, especially in cases where it may not be safe for them to be at home. I, I've had students confide in me in that, you know, we've had to take the proper precautions and make some phone calls to ensure their safety. And uh, it, it it's definitely opened up my eyes because we're all going through something. And had I not created a safe space for them, a lot of this stuff would have just kind of been swept under the rug and nobody would have known about it. So often the teacher is the first and last line of defense as far as that goes, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we, we see these kids a lot of times more often than their parents, like we're with them day in and day out and we go on school trips and, um, yeah. So they, they just, we, we become family if, if you're doing it right, if you're not there, for the right reasons, then that may not happen. But as long as you're there for those kids and that's what you've made your main goal, um, you definitely become very close. So I want to take this in a, a little bit different tangent because we met at college. We've been friends since college. Yeah. Now, I graduated in 2011. You graduated in 2014. 2014. So it's been a minute for both of us. Um, one of the things that I think as time progresses, and I've seen this in the startup space and the career placement industry, recruiting, just the overall job market, uh, especially if you're a developer, if you're an engineer, coder, um, even a product manager, graphic design artist, a lot of these different trades, you don't need to go to college at all. College is not helpful at all. And I think that in the next 10, 20, 30 years, you know, the percentages of college versus trade school versus courses on a Udemy or a YouTube, you know, it's going to be a lot more spread out. So with your seniors, the 18 year olds, what is their mindset right now? Do you have any types of rough percentages on who did well on the SAT and is bound for college and post-grad work? Or like, where do you see all of this stuff shaping up and what are the parents telling them? Like, what is the focus now here in 2019? So a lot of the parents are still gung ho on getting their children to college. For me as an educator, I tell them it really depends on what they are wanting to do with their lives. Like obviously college could be great. So let me put it this way. For me to be teaching English, I had to go to college. That's not something that I can just interview for without the proper classes have been being taken. You know, I have to. They have to make sure you've read 1984. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but I have also told my students, like, if you don't know what you're wanting to do, or if you're just, if you have some other kind of idea in mind, you don't just want to jump into college and funnel in a lot of money or take out loans and you just be scratching your head once you get there, having no idea where you want to go. Um, I have many friends that went to college and they're not even using their, their degree you're sitting, the job with that they have. you're yeah. sitting with one. Yeah, exactly. And um, you've been successful in your own right, but you've always kind of had that persona about you. And I think college may have helped like fine tune some of those things in you, but I don't think you necessarily needed it, but you can speak more on that. I needed it to get my first internship. Um, I needed my first internship to get my first job. And even then the path was bumpy. Um, it, it is interesting. Like I don't directly use a lot of the things that I learned in college, but more than anything, the overall bent and direction of my life, it's only been until recently that I've realized this is my life. Like I can do what I want and I'm free to create businesses or publications or you know, thought pieces that speak to me, speak to people around me. I don't have to seek approval from any particular group. And I'm sure you identify with this coming from uh, not only a traditional scholastic background, but also a religious one that most of the decisions that I made and executed up until the point I was probably 25, 26, 
were because they were the next logical step in the process. And this is what you do. You go to college so that you can uh, get a degree, maybe meet a spouse, you know, or yeah. identify one. Yeah. So I, I go through all of these processes and then leave with none of that. And I'm starting back over at square one. And your first job is really your college degree if you're not a professional. So if you're not a lawyer, doctor, orthodontist, anything, even you're a professional because there's a test that says that you can do what you say you do. Yes. If you're in PR, advertising, marketing, sales, you're as good as your back. Uh, you're as good as your last case study, essentially. Right. Um, is there any specific moment or a point in which you realize or your eyes were open that you could do kind of anything in the world that where you know you could just knock down the doors and go forth and leave that typicalness of like settling down, finding a wife, living in that small town, raising your children. Yeah. I think age is, age has been a helper as far as that goes with every year that passes, uh, from being under my parents' home and hearth where it's not been stressed that I need to be married or be doing anything in particular at all. Uh, but every year that I've been separated from that and more of the religious school background, I've been able to think more for myself. I would say the, the biggest piece in the last several years that's led to more of my um, freedom of thought has been the startup, like Cosmic JS. Um, I left my agency job. I got my last W two paycheck as like a real paid employee of a firm in April of 2016. Wow! And it's now late September 2019. So. That feels really good to have not worked for the man. You can't see me on audio, but I'm, I'm using air quotes here. Um, but you also feel very removed from all the safety that is corporate America, corporate welfare, getting that W-2 uh, paycheck every two weeks. Like I'll never forget my parents sending me an article partway into my startup experience where when we first started this company, um, I didn't get a paycheck for 18 months prior to us raising enough capital to then pay ourselves a small stipend. So it really was kind of a lentils and rice type situation, but every month that you're separated from having to show up at that gig at 8.30 AM and make sure you're button seat mm -hmm. and you know looking productive, every month spent away made me realize how much, how much coordination time is spent to run the actual duties of your job. Yeah. But, there's also so much collateral goodness that comes from that as well, because part of the issue with the startup world that I was experiencing with work from home, you know, total remote, remote workforce, no office, um, limited networking events, different things like that. Like I like getting up in the morning and putting my pants on and getting to talk about the Emmys over the water cooler with someone. And when you work in a remote atmosphere, you know, you're, you're getting onto Slack or Google Hangout or Skype to uh, essentially talk about the actual duties of the day. And it's like, it's very tactical and right. there's not as much sharing going on uh, from an interpersonal level, which I've definitely missed and something that I'm looking to marry in my next role. I'd still like to stay in the startup space, but do it with more of a well-backed team that, you know, has a clear definition of a, a go to market and the ideal customer profile that they're going after, but they can also cut loose and, play PlayStation in the break room or do whatever. Absolutely. I think there is an importance there in having just a community or a, a tribe around you and just having that interpersonal connection. Dude, absolutely. Like not to, not to go completely dark here, but America and the world is fascinated with the Ted Bundy's of the world and serial killers and true crime and, I watch, I just got done watching Unbelievable on Netflix, which is about a string of assaults. The first of which was uh, recanted in Washington. And then the same assaults were taken, they took place on two women in Colorado back in the uh, earlier 2000s. And they ended up piecing this together among departments that didn't share information. And it was a captivating, you know, true crime type situation but I see how removing yourself from society, every step that you take in that direction, especially as a man, especially as a man, you can get weird. Yeah. Things can get weird when you don't see people on a daily basis, when you're not accountable for 
personal cleanliness and like, you know, a, a clean mind and showing up right. and like, Hey, I'm here for at least eight hours today. You can, you can get weird, I would say. And it's not even Ted, Ted Bundy esque, but you just see the sliding path of, you know, the devil, what is it? The devil's playground is an mm-hmm. idle mind or idle hands. Yep. Um, Nothing to contribute on the uh, becoming a Ted Bundy by being alone. <laughs> well, I, you know, I've I've had the luxury of of not having to work alone, you know, since my career began. Um, but I will say, even moving to Maryland and leaving all of my friends and family kind of behind and, and starting a new life out there, even though I did have a community, it was it was fresh, and there are pros to that. But leaving your safety net and not having those people that you confide in and seeing them every day, uh, there's a certain amount of sadness or depression that comes along with that too. And um, I can already tell that my mental health is a lot greater now that I'm back here uh, in Texas. I definitely don't regret moving away, but it's so nice to have that comfort again. Well, you know so much more now that you moved away. You experience life in another portion of the country, another culture. And I would have to say, like, we're similar in that I went and lived in Baltimore for a year. Mm-hmm. And then you lived in Silver Spring. Silver Spring for two? Yes. Two years. And I always felt like you did a better job of transferring your after hours culture and needs to Maryland than I did. So yeah. I always had like a really bad habit of. Like for instance, when my startup calendar disappeared a couple of months ago when I left my startup, uh, my calendar was completely blank because everything was, I was always all in on work and everything revolved around that. And I would forego personal plans, like future vacation plans, family commitments because of work. And I felt like you joined trivia. Yeah, I joined a trivia group out there. Um, I was in DC every weekend doing some type of event or checking out an art museum. Uh, I also joined a, a intramural softball league, but that was because I needed to stay busy or else I would be home in a dark room in, you know, Maryland, it's a lot colder than Texas. And, uh, and I had to grow accustomed to that, but just that cold weather, not seeing the sun for days. If I if I wasn't able to see anyone, it, it would make me, it would make me feel pretty low. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's something to be said about the, the climate changes too, for how yeah. on your disposition. Cause no doubt. I definitely like the sunshine and I get depressed whenever it's not been <laughs> out for some days, especially if you're working from home and kind of cut <laughs> off from the general population, like that can be difficult. 100%. Well, yeah, you did a good job while you were up there. I know you were glad to come back down to your home state, your hometown area. Yeah, it's, it's been lovely. You get uh, to split time with your Dallas and Fort Worth friends, and yep, trying. You know, that's a good problem to have. Uh, just trying to make sure to see everybody. But you know, going from seeing family twice a year at Thanksgiving and Christmas to seeing them every week uh, definitely makes things easier on you. I'll tell you, it's great for the first six months or so, and then. <laughs> You're like, man, I used to just be able to send a Hallmark card yeah. and a phone call and I yeah. was done, baby. It's you know? like, you know, I can't miss you if you're always here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember missing my family when I was out at YC in San Francisco. And then three months into being back, I was like, I'm not ready to move away again. <laughs> yeah. You know, whenever the last time I came home before I moved back was uh, last Christmas. And I remember showing up at the airport, you know, my dad came to pick me up and my eyes just watered because I was so happy to see him. It's called crying, right? <laughs> and now, now I'm just like, all right, dad, well, uh, you know, we're living under the same roof again, but I'll, I'll still see you in a few days. <laughs> like, so you moved back in with dad. Is oh yeah. Name? Yeah. My dad and stepmom. Um, I am saving up money for a home and, uh, you know, once you're paying 1400 bucks a month in Maryland for rent and, having nothing to show for it in the end, I, I definitely just wanted to save up my money and eventually own. Something. So you're on the home ownership train now. Absolutely. Okay. You're not saving up for an apartment. You're saving up no. for a down payment. You know, being a teacher, I also travel in the summers and I can just rent that out and have Airbnb it up and make some extra cash. I'm all about it. 
That's awesome. How much of a down payment do you need for a home nowadays? Oh, man. It's such a hot, like they're saying the average home price in 2030 is going to be half a million dollars. And it's just like this, it's this portion of the American dream that for people in my generation, when a car is 50, 60, $70,000 right. and a home is 500, you know, good luck. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good luck, especially on a teacher salary. You know, it, it's, uh, it can be quite difficult, which is another reason why I moved back in with my parents, uh, just trying to be financially, uh, smart about everything. Interesting. So when are you going to be looking for a home? Oh, uh, probably mid next year. I'm looking mid 2020. I've, I've saved up a little bit and, uh, you know, we'll get a realtor about next July, maybe next July, July of 2020, a lot of stuff going on in 2020. We've got, we've got some current events dialed up here. Um, the first one was kind of a question mark. I didn't know if you <laughs> wanted to discuss Donald Trump's impeachment, Bradley, but oh. what, what are you thinking about going into 2020, this impeachment, the democratic field, like, Let's just talk talk objectively. And podcast listeners, like, you might hate Donald Trump. You might love him. Uh, if, if you hate or love him, we probably don't have a whole lot in common. <laughs> you, you probably should be a bit more apathetic. Yeah, but, 100%. I mean, it's a bunch of gray area. I will say, if he hasn't been impeached by now, I think he's going to rock. You know, he's, he's not going to get kicked out of office. I don't, I don't think so. It's Teflon Don. Yeah, he's untouchable, you know. It's just interesting how all these people that have been weighing in for years saying, impeach him, get him out, like this is treason. Now they're the same people. We, we just watched Bill Maher's uh, episode from last night, and he's already, you know, walking it back and saying maybe this was a mistake. Right. And let's say he does get impeached. Who do we have then? Mike Pence? Uh Nothing is going to change. <laughs> like whatever you're upset about, as far as Donald Trump, you're just going to get that with Mike Pence. So if you're not happy with Donald, you're not going to be happy once he's out of office. You might as well just make sure you make it to the voting booths uh, this next time around. Is that part of the problem, though? Because why is it that there's this overall sense that maybe the Democrats can't beat him fair and square, even after all of this? hullabaloo over the last three years. Like, I think there's this overriding sense that even Biden, who, you know, for the longest time before he got, before he opened his mouth, <laughs> before he opened his mouth, I thought this guy could beat Donald Trump. And then he opened his mouth. And then he opened it. His eye exploded. He opened his <laughs> mouth. He told African-American families to put the record player on for early childhood education. Like he's, he's lost it. He's absolutely not all there anymore. No. And the issue is you're like, okay, well, we are obviously in a terrible situation. So everybody's going to go to vote. And then it comes around to that. And it's like, okay, well, everybody else is going to take care of it. And you don't get off your couch and go to, you know, the ballots and um, you're just relying on everybody else. So if you actually want to make a change, everybody needs to go. Everybody needs to vote. You can't just rely like there's so many people that are frustrated, but I guarantee they're not going to register and if you're unhappy with the situation, it's just going to roll back around again. And it's going to be four more years of that. Yeah, I've heard a lot of people just speculate that if the economy does not fall out prior to the election, that there's not a whole lot that the Democrats could do from that perspective. Because no. um, with Trump, you always have the silent voters that, oh, yeah, Trump's terrible. You know, yeah. can't believe what he did. But they're going to go pull the ballot for him in the ballot box. And why is that? Um it's interesting. I was in Colorado Springs uh, earlier this month with some friends having dinner and it was kind of a diverse group of people. Um, we had a, a German national that works for Volkswagen corporate. Mm -hmm. uh, he happens to be dating my sister who also <laughs> works for Volkswagen corporate. Uh, we had a, an auditor, a tax guy. We had a doctor, a couple real estate people, and none of these people around the table voted for Trump. But if you ask them, what are you thinking? They're like, you know, Twitter's crazy, but my 401k is looking good. Mm -hmm. And it's almost become this, when Democrats get together after hours, they're like, woe is me, but also I am benefiting from right. the current situation. And, you know, whether or not that's, whether or not that, that satisfies for everything else that's gone on is a different story. So do you think it's just going to be a battle of social statuses this time around? 
I think everything depends on who the Democrat nominee is, because the battle that Trump would take to a Biden is going to be different than the one he takes to a Bernie or uh, an Elizabeth Warren um, or my personal favorite, Pete Buttigieg. Why is he your favorite? I think Pete Buttigieg could win based on merit over Donald Trump because he is a articulate um, kind of home and hearth, you know, heartland of America uh, dude that has this amazing track record. Like, first of all, how cool is it that gay marriage comes into place several years ago? And now the fact that Pete is a homosexual man running for the president, it's not even, it's not even a factor. They don't even talk about it. They just say you and your husband, I've heard, I think it was Van Jones on CNN was saying, how cool is it that just several years after the fact, that's just commonplace. Like no need to even bring it up as, as, you know, different. Yeah. I will say just as far, you know, you're talking about articulation, it would just be so nice to have that again. Um, I I think the way in which you articulate uh, really plays a role. I notice even though people were against Barack Obama or those that were because he was so articulate in what he had to say, it was a lot easier to swallow all the things that you disagreed on. His professionalism more than made up for the, um, the lack of vision that you might've had on key issues. Yeah. I mean, and it's highlighted now. I don't know if you watched the second democratic debate, but Obama was a centrist and a half. Mm -hmm. He deported three and a half million people. Oh yeah. Deporter in chief. Yeah. But the way the tone in which you like Donald Trump is known for ruffling feathers and, you know, just being very crass and whenever it's just like whenever a parent is kind of scolding you and it's a difference between them laying out why you shouldn't do something rather than just saying, I, it's because I told you so, you know? Yeah. I think that's, I think his crassness and his inability, it's weird. Cause on the one hand you talk to a lot of people prior to 2016 and they would always say, he tells it like it is. He's a charmer. Like one on one, he could swoon you and kind of bring you in and make you feel good. But when it comes time for him to be uh, the heart in chief of the country, like when he's consoling people in El Paso or, you know, going down to Puerto Rico to hand out paper towels or <laughs> what, like those are the moments where you're just like, ah, this guy might be like more shallow than a wading pool. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> you begin to despise him bigly. A big league. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That, that's enough about him. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to harp on him, but, It's just going to get more and more intense throughout 2020. And I think that, like I said, the fight that he brings to the particular candidate is going to be different. Uh, I I do think that he has his front runners uh, for candidates that he does not want to face. Mm. Um, I think Elizabeth Warren would be a thorn in his side. 100%. She is articulate, well-researched. She's inspired. She, She really believes what she's saying. And it's her first go run at this. Whereas like a Bernie who has an original message, but he doesn't have a lot of particulars, you know, he, he's very adamant that he has a grassroots movement going that requires millions of people to jump on board. And then question mark. I believe a lot of Bernie supporters have now flocked to Warren. So I I definitely think it's her time to shine. I agree. Um, Okay. Moving off of Donald Trump. Are there any other egomaniacs that you want to talk about? Egomaniacs. Oh, Kanye West, man. Oh, Kanye West. No, he's got Jesus now. Oh, he's had Jesus since Jesus Walks back in the early 2000s. How does this work? Because he has a new album dropping this weekend? So he did a few shows last night. and uh, his in album, Detroit. Yes, and his album drops uh, tomorrow on Sunday. Do you remember, uh, was it Kim that tweeted out, the, the notepad with all the songs yeah, and they yeah, speculated yeah. that that was the news. So he's been doing like the Sunday services where he's been playing a lot of gospel music or remixing secular songs and turning them into gospel music. And uh, now he's re- releasing this uh, gospel centric song. I, I still believe he's, he's going to be rapping on it and a bunch of other stuff, but I guess we'll see. Do you buy 
organic spirituality from Kanye or is he singing to <laughs> no, himself? Cause I, I thought he's called himself God. I mean, he has, he, if you look back at his first two albums, you know, they they heavily rely on uh, using gospel samples and he's always been really great at that. And he's been in hot water, uh, you know, for wearing the MAGA hat and, uh, you know, he, he's one guy that used to say, uh, George Bush doesn't care about black people. And now, you know, he's up in the white house chilling with Donald Trump <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's just, it's crazy. And, uh, you know, then he talks about how slavery was a choice. And so he's definitely been in hot water recently. I don't feel 100% apt to go any further on that being a white male. Um, but, but no yeah, exactly. But, um, I definitely think he's using Christianity to maybe earn or buy his way back in to the public's good graces. I definitely, I definitely think it's well calculated, um, just with the timing of it all. I've seen the Sunday service stuff with the weird kind of off lighting that they have, and yeah. it just seemed like it almost seemed like a networking event. Networking, almost a little cultish. Um, Dude, speaking of which, not to change the subject, but totally to change the subject. Did you watch The Family on Netflix? I didn't. So The Family is this mini series about like the oldest, totally informal, invisible organization in American politics. It's called The Family. Okay. And there's this book. So they took the Bible and they distilled it down to this book called Jesus. And this guy named Doug Coe back in the day created this organization out of DC that actually started all the national prayer breakfasts across the world. Mm -hmm. So when you see Trump and Pence at the national prayer breakfast with all the politicians and it's on C-SPAN and all of this, do you ever wonder, like we have separation of church and state, Yes. but how is this on, like, how did this get put together where it almost looks like the white house is putting it on? Well, it's a, a national not-for-profit that's tax exempt as a church yeah. with no formal headquarters, no structure or organization. And, what they would do is they would have guys go live at these frat houses and they would play football. They would pray together. They would do all this stuff and then they would network. And it was not uncommon for a Prince of Arabia to walk into the house or, you know, a Duchess of York or, right. or you know, whatever world power there was. And really it was about taking the, the, the truth of Jesus and networking with it. And it, it is a crazy miniseries. I highly recommend that you go check that out on Netflix. But it's just amazing to see how embroiled uh, they can take the religious aspect of right. things. And the, the other thing particularly that was troubling was there had been politicians like senators and, and governors. I think Governor Mark Sanford from South Carolina, he was the one that was caught with the uh, Argentinian hooker oh. back in the day. And he was a part of the family. So he retreated back to the family's headquarters for prayer and spiritual time. But because they have the premise that all sin is bad mm -hmm. and all worthy of rebuke, you know, your infidelity to your wife or this person's pedophilia or this person's assault, they're all equal right. in the eyes of God. And so they all are looking for condoning and mm -hmm. atonement. And it, it really muddies the waters because you know, in your world, like God may not have a record of sins that's weighted, but we certainly do. Yeah. You got to be held accountable. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So that's really interesting that Kanye is going in that direction. Do you see any other artists that have gone like, what is this, his sixth or seventh or eighth album? Oh man, probably eighth at this point. That could be a couple numbers. This seems off. like a normal arc, you know, like intro album, sophomore album, and then the club bangers come in the middle, mm -hmm. the watch the throne, and then we turn to Jesus as yeah. we get later in life. I mean, <laughs> it, it's kind of like rebooting your old favorite classic movie. Like, he knows that the gospel stuff works, and it's just an easy way to come back into good graces with pop culture and being accepted again. It's interesting. We'll, we'll have to uh, discuss how we like the album on the next podcast that we put together, but... Let's move it forward to some to some ball real quick because uh, we're sitting here in Dallas, Texas, for all you podcast listeners and um, two unapologetic Dallas Cowboys fans on the couch. That's right, we them boys, 
Dak Prescott, Zeke Elliott. Oh man, it's just been lovely watching them, and I'm so excited to see them play against the Saints tomorrow. I got excited. I've been excited for what two or three years now since oh, yeah. since Romo went out and Dak came in, and then Zeke came in. It was like too good to be true at first because we had the triplets again. We yes. had like the new version of Aikman, Emma Smith, and Michael Irvin, but they were all young. Yeah, and they didn't. Well, I think Zeke has always had probably an ego and a violent streak. <laughs> oh, <and> you think? <laughs> but Dak seems to be a model human, and I was just so excited. And now that now that they've proven themselves over several seasons, and we're locking them into these contracts, mm, Dak needs to get paid. We need to pay him. They're going to pay him. How much are they going to pay him? I don't know, but it it needs to be a high number. He's one of the. I mean, look at his stats. Uh, you may you might know better than me, but his we well, had a perfect passer rating yeah. the first game, right? Like, perfect, uh, incredible. Um, I'm so happy to see Witten back, uh, old faithful. <laughs> He's been getting touchdowns. Man, too. it's been incredible. I love it. I can finally wear my Witten jersey again. It's, <laughs> it's been great in my household. What do they do with the Monday Night Football crew now that Witten's gone? Oh, I thought I saw a couple guys in there the other day that I didn't even recognize. And that's completely fine. I'd much rather see Witten on the field than in the booth. Well, sure. As long uh, as he's playing for the Cowboys. Exactly. And Tony Romo, on the other hand, I'm loving seeing him, uh, you know, just call out every play before it happens. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. So he's been, he's been wonderful. Every game he called his first season, he would trend on Twitter, and it yep. was just so much love. Like, man, he, he sees it before it happens. Yeah, he was back at it last week. I saw it on Twitter again, and he, you know, he's just calling like a reverse play and how the quarterback's going to run it into the end zone, and then it happens. It's, it's been crazy. You know, you know my mom. My mom is. I have a, a untraditional family in that my mother is the rabid sports fan. <laughs> watches every Dallas Cowboys game, every Texas Rangers ball game. My dad is the one that would probably rather go to the cultural <laughs> event or the play or something right. like that. Um, and she was she was basically saying that – I don't remember what she was saying. <laughs> what were we talking about with that? Uh, we were talking about Romo. Romo. Oh, thank you. She was talking about how Romo was always too well-rounded mm-hmm. as an athlete and an individual to be a, a, an effective Super Bowl winning quarterback because – I don't know if you saw, um, he was playing at the AT&T Byron Nelson last year. He's played several years in a row, and he was under par for the first round or two. Yeah. He's like a scratch golfer, amazing athlete, football, baseball, I believe. Yeah, I mean, being decent at everything has its perks, but, you know, whenever you're just an all-around great guy, you you don't typically – Get the get the ring at the end. It was unfortunate that he never got a ring. Uh, care about Tony very much. Before we move off of football, we should probably touch the hottest thing in the room, which is Maybe. Antonio Brown. Oh yeah, our, <laughs> uh, our boy. Instead of how to lose a guy in ten days, it's how to lose what fifty, ninety million in four days. I'm just so glad I didn't have him on fantasy football because that's been an emotional roller coaster. I have uh, one of my best friends. Uh, picked up Antonio Brown, and he was devastated that you know he was kicked off the team. But then moments later, he was so thrilled to have him on the Patriots. Thought he was gonna you know be there all season and and uh, help take him to his fantasy football victory. And now AB has fallen once more. And he's he's calling out the NFL. He's like making tweets like, you know, I'm, I'm not going out play. for what. Well, the way he was talking about owners. Have you heard this whole? drama about you know sports leagues being compared to some sort of modern day slavery with owners and the fact that we call them owners is is bad and like have you heard that whole drama i haven't i have like it's very interesting and just kind of like what do you you agree with that statement what what statement what part of it because that that just calling them owners like should we find a new name um no we shouldn't find any that that part is ridiculous is there any implication that that players are being treated unfairly sure i, I think that's how you say the majority of players, no. or would you say and i think it's irregardless of race okay. i think that i mean let, let's these these performers play for free 
up until the point of the NFL. They've already suffered CTE through peewee, through college football for sure, where arguably a lot of people think that they should be paid a lot, you know, to play on a college football mm-hmm. team. Um, they finally make it to the NFL, you know, yeah. and they're mistreated. They have an average career of three and a half seasons. And then there's the whole dispute about, you know, they're playing on the field. They have to put their hand over their heart for the national anthem. But, you know, the owners are mandating this thing. And what are the owners normally? Old white men, you know, for the most part. Right. So I think it's I think it's a convenient finger to point. Um, I think that there's always been institutional racism in the NFL. I think it's probably reared its head more around head coach positions. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've heard Stephen A. go off on Jason Garrett maintaining his position in Dallas and saying the reason why he's been a coach for Dallas for so long is because he's white. And that if it had been a Mike Tomlin or somebody like that, that he might not have been. And I don't know how much merit there is to that. but I mean, if you look at previous Dallas Cowboys coaches who have been predominantly white, I don't think they've all stuck around as long either in the past few years. No, because, I mean, he has had the most success. Like, right. I mean, he's probably beating Bill Parcells' record at this point. That's what I'm thinking. Um, this is his 10th season. Can you believe that? that? Yeah, that's wild to me. And I've also been on the train where I'm like, we need to get Jason Garrett out of there. But not to sound too uh, – um, I don't even know the word I'm looking for, but we're only three games in. I'm feeling very hopeful this season. So well, especially maybe, the I'll, NFC East. maybe I'll have to eat my words. We'll have um, to see what Philly does with wins. Right. And, and, but as far as the players go, I, I view many of them as just being, you know, spoiled brats. Um, it, once again, this is just a sports game and they're getting paid millions to play. I understand that they're an incredible talent, but they're also – just coming from a teacher's perspective where, you know, I, I make pennies on the dollar um, and I deal with a lot throughout my day. And there's certain things that I have to abide by as far as being a teacher. Um, like I don't get to make the rules either. And there's certain things that I have to do that I'm not happy about. But at the end of the day, you, you know, I, I'm not there for the money. And maybe obviously a lot of those players are there for the money and they're trying to milk it for as much as they can. Um, but whenever I see players like AB and all of his actions, you know, decisions lately, uh, it just seems very brat, bratty. And it's amazing to see how quickly everything can go down the drain because AB is truly one of the most gifted players that's ever set foot on a field. Yeah, but it doesn't matter whenever nobody likes your personality. It just, there, I have two points to make here. And one is, you just compared the teacher salary to an NFL salary. And I've heard that whole, I've heard that whole uh, dis- argument all growing up. And I actually disagree with that piece because as a capitalist, I do think that we are all a percentage of the value that we create. Okay. And so if Antonio Brown laces up his cleats and goes out on the field and scores three touchdowns and leads the team to the Super Bowl, and th- think about the additional games that are played in that stadium during the postseason. Think about all the beer sales. Think about the pretzel sales, all the people from the community that are clocking in extra hours because of his catches. Yeah, the 100%. season would have been done. He's creating, think about the people creating jerseys, marketing jerseys online or through brick and mortar sales. There, there's like, a lot of money to be made there, but that just, like my thought on that is still we – care too much about sports as a whole like and i'm guilty of it too like i'm a consumer i have two dallas cowboy jerseys you know i i go to the games as well um i just think there is an issue there but i'm not doing anything about it either so i guess i shouldn't be complaining the second point that i would make about that is that it just gives me a newfound appreciation and admiration for guys like lebron who were given 90 100 million at 18 and, you know, what is it, 15, almost 20 years later, it seems like, you know, he's got a billion dollars. He's got his hands okay. and everything. And the biggest thing that we've ever slapped his hand over was getting caught speeding at 106 miles an hour yeah. late at night. Like he's been a LeBron, model human. One, yeah, that's exactly Heads what I was say. Um, You know, he's opened up a university, I believe, or some schools and um, definitely has dipped his his uh, toes in some other business ventures and 
has just been an all-around great model. Who's his guy? Maverick? Is that his his uh, business compadre? Yeah, that sounds right. I read a, a GQ profile on Maverick um, who heads up the entire entertainment portion of his business and uh, really fascinating. I, I think he helped coordinate the move to LA and I imagine that that was all strategic to um, you know, get a better foothold in the entertainment industry as well. Yeah, for sure. Definitely a smart move. Okay. All right. Last current event before we wrap this first pod up. Talk about snitches getting stitches. Absolutely. Takashi 69. Um, I tweeted out the other day. Yeah. Just before uh, he calls me out, you know, I, I, <laughs> I stole Hot Wheels from my babysitter whenever I was four years old. Um, I will gladly reimburse my uh, old babysitter, Rhonda. <laughs> Rhonda. <laughs> have no issue there. Um, so, I, you know, I am guilty. I'll, I'll say that up front now. So let me, let me replay this for other folks that have not been embroiled in this controversy. <laughs> so there's a little four foot eight dude up in New York city yes. that is lyrically gifted to some, well, to some. Okay. And so he goes to, what was it? The nine bloods. What, what was the, the name? Some of type of bloods. I, I, all these clusters of gangs in New York was very educational for me to read about, but he goes to them and says, I'll pour money into the gang for gun orders. If oh, yeah. you guys give me a rep and essentially it all started through a music, through video. a music video. And they, they met that day and it all, and it he all brought, he brought all the, the gangsters, if you will. And the thing that I didn't realize was the, the, the market for people actually vetting music videos based on the level of gangster in the, like to me, they're just people holding guns, you know, around T-Pain or B.O.B. or whatever right. the, yeah, the rapper yeah. is. This one, it seemed like the fact that he had legitimate gang members in the video. Oh, for sure. Helped spurn the virality of it. Oh yeah. They, I mean, you know, we joke, we were joking off mic about uh, him calling out Jim Jones and how he's a retired <laughs> rapper who, and if, if you know anything about rap, uh, Jim Jones is not retired, but it was just a nice little dig at him. Um, but there's a video clip of him calling out Jim Jones, like outside of the court case and saying how he was in the gang. And you can visibly see within the video people walking off camera. So they're not uh, around while Takashi is, is snitching um, on these different types of people. Um, you, we're definitely learning which rappers are actually about that life and which ones aren't. I'm just confused about the the scale of these gangs and the protection that he's going to need coming out because well, he's because not taking he, any protection. Right. But before we get to that, like he snitched on the, the trial that he was uh, snitching at were against two associates in yes. the gang. And he was like that man there, that man there. And they There's were no standing issue. trial. So he's going to walk away scot-free in 2020. Yes. He'll be able to vote <laughs> in 2020. <laughs> Drop a new album. <laughs> so, how deep is this portion of this gang that he calls out Jim Jones, he calls out Cardi B and he's going to forego witness protection. Did, did they lock everybody up or what does this look like? Are there 200 gang members chomping at the bit, ready to, you know, put a hit on somebody? I I don't know, but I will say, you know, whenever you are living that kind of life, regardless of who you're tied to, Nobody likes whenever you're giving out names because eventually you could come down the road and he could rat you out. And so I definitely think he's uh, his life is at stake and he's foregoing witness protection uh, so he can continue his music career, which is wild. Is me. that what he's expressly said? Yes. He's doing it for music? Oh, yeah. Is he alive in five years? In five years. By, by natural means or not? And some might say they're natural given the line of work he's in. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If he foregoes witness protection, I would say there's a high chance that he will not be with us uh, at that time. Another rap career will be getting made by taking out Takashi 69. Oh, yeah, because then they'll be able to, you know, rap about that and snitch on some other people and then they'll be fine, too. 
the whole going back through your history and, and figuring out gang affiliations based on who you grew up with or who's down the block, like it just seems like such a slippery slope. And yeah. And I, we're also living in a meme culture where everything is kind of taken as a joke. And so you see a lot of memes, of, you know, I, I even made the joke about, you know, him ratting me out before we began talking about all this. Um, but it makes it seem a lot lighter than it really is. Um, once again, you know, he, he has made himself a huge target. For such a small guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, we've seen the videotapes of him uh, running in his shoes about how fast he can run. It's not, he's not going to outrun a bullet. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Religious teacher Brad, folks, who cannot run a bullet. Uh, nope. Yeah. Anything more on Takashi or retired rapper Jim Jones? You got an um, album review? Hey, his, his last album, I believe it's called El Capo, was amazing. I think it's his best body of work. It's it was the released. sister album to Kanye's New Jesus album. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'll have to check out Kanye's uh, whenever it drops at midnight. Um, I guess I'll be looking forward to that. But. Um, yeah, check out Jim Jones' album. Shout out. Uh, I'm hoping he has another album in him. Me too. I, I don't remember anything since We Fly High back in 2005. <laughs> Ballin'! <laughs> All right, guys, on that note, thanks for checking out the first episode of our pod. Please give us feedback. Let us know what material you loved, which material we can totally skip the next time. I have a feeling it's probably going to be anything to do with Trump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, I would like to uh, end this by saying I did call my students idiots or dum-dums, one of those at the beginning of the podcast. I love them to death. They are highly intelligent, some of them. Uh, <laughs> you know, they're all going to go to do great things. So <laughs> let me just end it on a serious note, even though I'm laughing. Brad's training. Don't the, fire me. The greatest class of upcoming nail technicians ever. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, listen, however you make that money, that's none of my business. All right, guys, shoot us, a, shoot us an email, carsoncgibbons at gmail.com. Bradley7691 at gmail.com. Or follow me on Twitter at carsoncgibbons. And humblebrad with a V. And that'll change next week, so make sure that you're, <laughs> you're following him now. I have to do multiple variations of looking for spelling his name, so good luck finding him. All right, y'all take care. Bye, everyone. <laughs>